As a journalist with the Liverpool Echo, Dave Prentice has reported on Everton for more than three decades, a journey he details in his new book, A Grand Old Team to Report. John Keith is a veteran broadcaster, journalist, football author and stage producer whose professional association with the Toffees dates back to the glory days of Harry Catrick, Alex Young and the Holy Trinity. I got Dave and John together to discuss their respective ties with Dixie Dean, their latest Everton projects, and to hear some of their favourite personal anecdotes from long careers spent on the inside of life at Goodison Park. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll roll back the years as the minutes go <laughs> by. And the, the, the common link, I think, between the two of you is, is probably the greatest player that's ever played for Everton. Dixie Dean, I'll, I'll start with you, Dave, of May, because you're related. <laughs> well, I'm not related. I mean, it's uh, it's all familial, but uh, yeah, I mean, to me, Dixie Dean was just you know the greatest footballer that you know so ever you know so pulled on a pair of boots for Everton Football Club, uh, a player that you know so I knew all about and read all about, and you know so I can't say idolised because I obviously didn't know a great deal about him uh, during his playing career. But, you know, his granddaughter uh, worked in the, uh, the pub that I used to like to go to before the matches, uh, the <laughs> Westminster, on Westminster Road. And um, used to, uh, shall we just say, worship Melanie from afar, <laughs> but back in the days. And a long and long and complicated story that I won't go into. Uh, but yeah, she eventually became my wife. And uh, we've been married over 20 years now. Uh, a couple of so children. All your, all your dubious one-liners work then? Uh, very, very dubious I know for a fact, Dave, that Dixie had a great uh, soft spot for Melanie, though, didn't he? Well, they lived together. I mean, um, yeah, I know, yeah. Melanie lived with him until she was, uh, I think she was 11 years old when he passed away. Uh-huh. Uh, and they were the, like, the, I think there was a great picture, wasn't there, of um, Melanie with a bit of string tied to a door pulling Dixie, one of Dixie's teeth out. She's told me that story, yeah, I'm okay, I've actually found them. Uh, I mean, really, a do- oh, dear, dear, dear. <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, they, were, they were partners in crime, you know, so, as well yeah. as you know, so dosing granddaughter and granddad, yeah, very much so. John, you knew Dixie quite well, didn't you? A privilege to know him, yes, Darren. I think I first met him at one of those famous Tranmere Rovers celebrity dinners, which were famous, you know, throughout the Northwest. And he used to speak there quite often, and of course, as a speaker, he was absolutely brilliant. He had what, what the great comics have. He had comic timing. He'd have that lovely delayed drop. And the audience were waiting for the head to roll and the chewing gum to come down, you know. He had that wonderful ability telling stories. He was a great, he was a great one for telling anecdotes. And of course, like Dave, I never saw him play. But my father saw him play. And... Um, he just said he was the greatest thing he'd ever seen or ever likely to see on a football field. No, it's funny, actually, our, our next-door neighbour here um, actually dropped an album off in the house last week. So, they are, you might be interested in this. And it's uh, called, I think it's uh, Echoes of Merseyside. And it was uh, an old-fashioned vinyl album that was produced, oh, yes. apparently by the Liverpool Echo in, like, 1972. Yes, I know that one, Dave, yes. Well, yeah, he speaks on it, as does Ralph, um, as do a number of, like, famous Merseyside people. You're absolutely right, John. Yeah, you know, he was a very, very gifted speaker. His, uh, like you say, his comic timing was perfect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the stories he used to tell me, as I say, I got to know him, I think, in the 70s and um, had the great privilege of writing his biography, 
of which I've got a wonderful review by a certain Dave Prentice <laughs> all those years ago. No, it was it was wonderful, Dave. Big, yeah. huge double page spread in the pink, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we did the stage shows, and now we're um, we're just about finished with this documentary, which has taken a long time, extended, of course, by the lockdown, which has hit us amidships. But nevertheless, we're nearly there now, and we've got some great contributions about the great man. Um, footballers today, yesterday, yesteryear. Um, lovely also, we managed to get his son Bill in Australia and I don't think he's ever done an interview about Dixie before and he's been great. So we're really looking, because Everton have been brilliant in the support they've given us. So um, just hoping that uh, early in the new year we might get it, uh, get it out. <laughs> That's certainly something to look forward to in, in, in these times. When you look at, when you watch football on the television, Dave, and people speak about modern strikers and they, they never ever delve into the past, they never mention Dixie Dean's legacy. For me, it's not as strong, it's not as powerful nationally yeah, or internationally yeah. as it should yeah, be, yeah. Dave. I agree 100%. I mean, a little anecdote that actually underlines that is... Um, Oh gosh, was it Harry Kane went on some mad scoring streak? You know, so not that long ago was it? Was it something like about you know seven or eight games in succession mm. he managed to score goals? And Sky, as they do, were getting very very excited about it. And uh, Alan Myers, who obviously used to work uh, at Everton, you know, so worked at Sky. And um, he said, oh, well, yeah, that, that's not bad. But, you know, Dixie Dean, you know, he scored, I think it was in uh, 12 consecutive games in the, was it the early 30s. Mm. And the guys at Scout, like, Dick Dixie Dean, yeah, we think we've heard that name. And he was like, well, you're joking, aren't you? You don't know Dixie Dean. So <laughs> know, he, he, came out, he came out to the house here to speak to her, to Melanie and myself, and just get a little bit of, you know, so family insights, if you like. But you're absolutely right. I mean, every now and then you hear a little mention. He was on Match of the Day, uh, a couple of... Um, was it earlier last season? Again, a hat-trick uh, record had been broken or something. Sergio Aguero broke the Premier League uh, hat-trick mm. record. And Alan Shearer was like made aware. Well, actually, Dixie Green Dean scored 37 hat-tricks. <laughs> and again, yes. he was like, wow, really? And, you know, he, he didn't say he'd never heard of him. But absolutely right in that his legacy should be a lot stronger than it actually is. And, you know, it relies on things, you know, so like John was talking about there, to try and perpetrate this and to try and, you know, so, you know, inform and educate, you know, so yes. the modern football audience what would Dixie make of the 21st century game John um, well I think oh well I think he'd uh, he'd love it because no tackling from behind <laughs> pitches like billiard tables instead of plowing through mud one week ice the next which they always had to do mm. um, and the because the difference in the balls as well I mean when Dixie was heading those sodden leather balls it must I mean how those old players did it I just don't know so to answer your question I think he'd revel in today's game don't you Dave? 100% yeah you think of the uh, you know the quality of the service he would receive I mean it's difficult trying to compare era to era and mm. uh, they always say all you can be is the very best in your era and Dixie wasn't just the best in his era by, you know, a, a certain margin. He absolutely obliterated his rivals. Yeah. I mean, you think about that 60-goal season. And I know people talk about the offside law having changed two seasons previously. And, uh, you know, that contributed. It didn't. You know, it took a couple of seasons before Dixie scored that 60-goal yeah, season. Yeah, defences quickly rearranged. 100%. They? But how... Yeah. how What's the closest anybody ever got to that target? 49 goals when everything was Pongo Waring scored that. Yes. So, you know, he's not just 
slightly better or marginally better than his peers. He's, He's massively better. Significantly better, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he did it over, you know, best part of 10, 11 seasons. So no, uh, you can't really compare to, you know, modern era to era, but he was by a country mile the best yeah. of that pre-war era. And that season, of course, apart from his 60 league goals, he scored 100 all told in <laughs> right, various yes. competitions, including representative and a few charity games. He just couldn't stop scoring. He was a goal yeah. machine, wasn't he? Absolutely. And one of the games he missed was a 7-1 win against West Ham, so the chances <laughs> are yeah. 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 would have been 14-1 with him. <laughs> <laughs> we, yes. we were, we, I've been speaking in the past to Evertonians about if you could just go to any game we've ever played, you know, Michael J. Fox picked you up outside the house, put you in his yeah. DeLorean, took you back in town to any game that you could go to. Pick one, Dave. It has to be that game. I mean, you know, some people would possibly say the Bayern Munich match, uh, but I was there at that game, you know, yeah. so I witnessed that. Mm -hmm. So I knew what that was yeah. all about. Um, obviously, I wasn't there in 1928, even though some people think that I look old enough to have been there. <laughs> but I've, I've had some great stories from people. I was fortunate enough to meet, uh, meet and talk to an old gentleman uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, a guy called um, Dick White, I think his name was, who was mm. a child uh, when he went to that game. And his dad, who was a, a policeman, dropped him off outside the ground. And um, he didn't have any money. He'd lost his money or something. And he was, he was crying his eyes out outside the ground. And an Evertonian actually paid for him to go into the main stand uh, and watch that game. And he told me the story about it. And he told me how incredible it was. The atmosphere, just that sense of being, you know, the uh, moment in footballing history. So, yeah, knowing what we know now, I would love to have gone back there and witnessed that and just savoured it and enjoyed it. And, you know, obviously football would have been very, very different then. And, you know, I don't know quite what we'd have made of the, the kind of football that was being played. But the actual atmosphere itself oh, and to actually yeah. be part of a moment of history like that, I can't think of any other occasion I'd much rather have been at than that no, one. No, you're right. And with his mother in the press box with her hands clasped in prayer, <laughs> saying, just one more chance, just one more chance. And he yeah. popped it in. And the tension must have been amazing because it was, there wasn't long left when, of course, the, the decisive yeah. goal went in, the record-breaking goal went in. So... It must have been a wonderful occasion. Yeah, I agree. I would have liked to have been there. But the other one that I would pick, which I was at, but I'd love to be there again. The Bayern Munich one was fantastic and there were many, but the one above all I cherish being there was um, Everton 5, Manchester United 0. <laughs> that, was an, that was such a performance by Everton. I think it's the best performance I've ever seen an Everton team give. It was yeah. just unbelievable. It could have been 10 I know I went for a drink after at the Winslow and this, uh, this guy, uh, several, several of the press lads went over there then and this uh, Evertonian came up and he said, if they were playing in blue and yellow, they'd have called them Brazil. <laughs> Green and yellow, he said, they'd have called them Brazil, which they would have done. They were just sensational. Even Kevin Sheedy scored with his head that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Joe Mercer actually echoed what you said there, John, because he was uh, collared after that game and asked about the performance, and he said it was the best Everton performance he'd ever seen. Well, there you are. And, you know, somebody, somebody oh, it was fantastic that. performance, yeah. that, yeah. We yeah. mentioned there, John, about 21st century football. Obviously, from, from your perspective and from Dave's perspective, things have changed enormously because when you started off, I suppose you could just rock up to Belfield and just walk straight in and knock on Harry Catterick's door, more or less. Yeah, well, perhaps not Harry Catterick's door, <laughs> because he was a very secretive gentleman, was Harry. 
and his door was often locked at the top of the spiral staircase. But <laughs> yes, we would go. Uh, well, we would have the split resources, really, the national press. So uh, because um, Liverpool and Everton, you know, training simultaneously, we had to half of us go to one, half go to the other, so we don't miss anything. But yes, we used to go there, and um, the number of times we got to see Harry was quite limited, but we managed to obviously pick up enough uh, information from players and coaches to make the trips worthwhile. Uh, and the same at, at Melwood as well. Um, it, it, the, the, the way it's changed has come across in, in, in your book that you've just, you've just put out, Dave, a grand old team to report. Some of your stories, some, some of your exclusives that you got at the Liverpool Echo, yourself and Ken Rogers and Rick George and Phil McNulty and what have you, they came from phone calls from members of the public. And that seems yeah. so quaint now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So many times we had you know, stories like that dropped in our lap. That, you know, you had to check out. I mean, Andy Gray signing for Everton. Uh, Ken Rogers got a phone call uh, at the Echo one day from a fan who'd seen Andy um, on Goodison Road. And so he rang uh, Jim, uh, Jim Greenwood, uh, the chief executive at the time. And I said, uh, a fan's just been on, said, you know, you're signing Andy Gray. I've got, I've got to check it out, Jim. Nothing in it, is there? And there's a silence on the end of the phone. <laughs> Give me a call back in half an hour, Ken. And he said, wow, wow there, is, there is something in it. So it was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I got a phone call when Nick Barnby was sold to, um, to Liverpool. And uh, somebody that claimed to work in Bill Kenwright's office in London. And I said, I've just heard Bill say the six words he thought he'd never, ever hear in his life. I want to play for Liverpool. And it just sounded like the kind of thing Bill would say. Yeah. So I rang, I rang Walter and said, um, look, I've just heard that, you know, so Nick Barmy's being sold to Liverpool. Nothing in it, is there? And you know what Walter's like? Yes. And says, nothing in it at all. And I, obviously, you know what happened with Duncan being stuck <laughs> behind his back. And yeah. I said, well, would you know, Walter? Of course I'd leading no apprentice now leave me alone anyway he basically lied to me the following day he apologized he had steve watson sat opposite him and he was trying to convince steve watson to sign for the club and if steve uh, would have been aware yeah. that his best player one of the best players was joining liverpool he might not yes. have been swayed him so following <laughs> day, apologized but yeah i mean people were all together more accessible back then i mean we used to go down to the training ground every single morning have a cup of tea with the manager discuss what was in the other morning papers and decide what they wanted to put in the evening paper. And then we'd go back at lunchtime. And if we wanted to interview players, we were basically just told to ask them. And it's mm. up to them yeah. if they talk to us. If they did, they did. If they didn't. Yeah. And I understand why the world changed. I mean, obviously the Premier League created that great, great deal of more scrutiny. Yeah, exactly. And a new product, wasn't it? Exactly. And then the internet, I mean, just like media organizations and websites started springing up everywhere. And it yeah. became impossible for football clubs to give that level of intimacy uh, with managers yes. and players. Yes, it did. Anymore. So, you know, I accept why it happened, but I, th I think we got the best of it, John, certainly. Oh, I mean, I quite agree. I quite agree. But there was one funny day at Belfield. In fact, I'm not sure, Darren, if I met you outside this particular day. It was Billy Bingham was manager and uh, they'd lost heavily at Manchester City at the weekend when Billy had played about six centre-backs. <laughs> anyway, um, like the Daily it? Mirror headline by, by Chris James, the story, <laughs> Bye Bye Bingham was the headline. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> we all rolled up to the gates, but at Belfield they were locked and... Um, I, th I thought it was Sid McGuinness, but he'd opened a little inner door and he said, oh, you're all, he said, you're all persona non grata. <laughs> so, we, so we were all camped outside and this woman came out with tea and donuts and we called it the donut siege. And oh, it was, it was brilliant because every time a car came out, 
it might be Gary Jones or Roger Kenyon or whatever, and they tell you this, this, that, and the others happened this morning. And we, we got far more stuff that day being locked out than if we'd been let in. And but <laughs> Billy was under siege in his office, you know. And yeah, Billy, I know, I know, I knew Billy well before he yeah. became manager of Everton, and uh, a bit unlucky in many ways. I think we're going on to talk later on about the season they should have won it, Darren. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Chris James there, John. When when I first <laughs> when I first started at Everton, uh, one of my tasks, and this sounds quaint as well, one of my tasks was to plug in all the telephones in the press box so everybody had a telephone to ring their ring their copy through, and and. When I'd finished yes. work, I used to walk up to County Road and I'd have a I'd have a quick beer in the brick and I'd see Chris James in the call box on County Road. Oh, <laughs> yes. Phoning his copy through with a pocket full of yeah. pops. Yeah. <laughs> oh I know. Amazing. But well even, his first um, sorry. I was gonna say, even 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 the press lads that there was so much character about, wasn't there? Colin Wood and Mike Ellis and, and Chris oh, James. Yes. Matt Darcy, Rossi, Kevin Francis, yourself. Yeah, very but, much so, yeah. Strong characters, John. Well, I think they had to be in those days because uh, you sort of ploughed your own furrow in a way. Um, but Chris in Chris in the telephone boxes, dear, dear, dear. But his first day on the Echo, uh, Dave probably knows this, uh, he came from St Neots in Cambridgeshire. But his first day on the Echo, Harry would never um, name a team in advance. And um, uh, he, he just named a squad and... Um, Alan Ball was top of the squad and Gordon West the bottom. So this particular day, Chris being new, gets this uh, this squad and decides for the stop press he's going to guess what the team is. So he put Lightly Everton team at West Brom and there it was. Anyway, this hits the streets and he gets a call from Harry Catterick, who he'd never spoken to before. He said, he said, I gather you're the new man in Liverpool. He said, that's right, Harry, that's right. He says, well, if you carry on as you are, you'll get no cooperation from me. And put the phone down on Chris, <laughs> who promptly, promptly got a taxi to met to Belfield to confront Harry. And he said, I'm Chris James and I've got a job to do. And that was it. And there were daggers out between him and Harry all the time after that, when Chris missed the bus at Southampton, um, he went. He complained to um, he complained to the editor of the Echo that Chris wasn't doing his job properly. Okay. But the editor of the Echo said, "Why did he miss the bus? He was getting his copy over to us, you know." Yeah. Oh yeah, but Chris was hilarious. Hilarious. He was. He was very good with taxis. I remember um, somebody telling me when, when Liverpool <laughs> yes. played Wolves on the last day of the 75-76 uh, season oh, yeah, yeah. and uh, they needed to win to win the league and um, Wolves needed to win to stay up mm. and uh, obviously knowing that it was going to be a late night and uh, you know he'd be you know late filing his copy he tried to book a, a hotel and the Echo wouldn't have it they said no 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 that, you know Wolves is only 100 miles down the motorway that doesn't qualify for an overnight stay in a hotel yeah. so we got a taxi uh, on our Davy Liver account, wait and return. <laughs> taxi <laughs> I, idling outside for him until about <laughs> half eleven at night, and then got it back. Probably cost more than the hotel would have cost anyway. <laughs> oh, he, he was an amazing character. He really was. Dave, do you think it's with all? This is not a disrespectful question. Do you think it's easier to be a journalist these days than it was in those days because information is so freely available, or do you think it's mm. more difficult because? It's more difficult to get an exclusive story now. It's it's, it's very very different, that's for sure. Um, I, I think 
I think when I first started, you were allowed to build relationships with people at the football club and mm-hmm. build levels of trust. And, you know, if you betrayed that trust, you wouldn't get stories off them again. But, you know, if you were proved to be trustworthy, you know, you, you'd know that you would get stories in the future. So it was a, an opportunity for you to prove to these individuals that you could earn that level of trust. That doesn't happen now. Uh, so that makes it more difficult i would say nowadays for people to get stories and obviously the level of competition now is absolutely intense yeah. uh, so it's very very different but what, what i particularly decry now and bemoan is the fact that modern journalists don't ring people anymore they don't have conversations everything's mm. all social media it's all uh, via email i mean we used to ring you know every single day you know we'd ring the chief executive you know mike dunford or jim greenwood we'd go down and speak to the manager uh, we'd ring players we'd have regular yeah. columns with players and so you'd be ringing them two or three times a week and as a result you build up lots of uh, relationships but equally you get to know other stories as well as a result of these like friendships that you build and it just it was a very very social job and i don't think it's the same as it was certainly i certainly but when you go into a newspaper office now mm-hmm. uh, you don't hear you know telephones you don't hear a chatter no, anymore. Don't, Dave, no. Uh, no they're very very silent places which is quite sad really it's, yeah i quite agree with you totally and of course um, the internet has just revolutionised everything. It's wall, it's wall-to-wall information, isn't it? It's just, no, it's all to be. Re- I've got great respect for journalists today because I don't envy what they have to do, because no. they've got to try to find something new amidst this morass of information, mm. which is going across the screen every minute of the day. It's. Um, You're you're a lot more accessible now than you were previously as a result of social media. I mean, whereas, you know, I remember trolling around the hotel in Holland. I think you might have been there, Darren, when uh, Mikhail Madar wanted to kill me because of something I'd written in the football echo. (laughs) But didn't know who I was. He was was saying to Joycey, Paul Joycey was uh, out there with us saying, who is this David Princess writing these things about me in the newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> Joycey caught me and just said, look, keep your head down. Rick Armadar's on the wall, but I don't think he knows who you are. <laughs> I managed to get away with it. <laughs> oh, dear. We were saying before, John, about you needing a telephone to, to, to send your copy through and you had to get a, yes. wait, for a, wait for an answer at the other end. And the scope for things to go wrong back in your day was a, was a lot bigger than it is now, wasn't it? Well, it was. I mean, you were dependent on phones. This was before laptops or even mobile phones. So you were dependent on a good copy taker. Um, Sometimes they were very slow and others were very, very quick. Um, Then, of course, the intermediary were the Tandies. Now, they were sort of very unreliable little computers. (laughs) And they they tended to go wrong more than they went right. And I remember (laughs) the night of that amazing 4-4 game when there were goals going in all over the place. And it was one of those nights when the BT lines decided to go down. And of course, you can imagine the chaos where people climbing over one another, trying to get yeah. to a phone inside the stadium. They did eventually come back on, but half the Tandy stuff had been deleted because of the faults. It was absolute chaos. And it would be on a 4-4 night, not on a goalless draw. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I remember poor old Ken Rogers suffering when... Um, we went down to, I think it was one of Millwall's few seasons in the uh, Premier League or whatever, First Division was it called back then. Yeah. And um, the press box, the only press box that had a telephone line in was right at the back of the stand. But you couldn't actually see the pitch from the back of the stand in this press box. You had to go and watch it from the front. So, but, and Ken had to do a football echo runner. I was doing it for the Daily Post then, which was... Oh. 
morning newspaper. So what I could just watch it and write about it the following day. It wasn't a problem for me. But Ken was having to run down to the front of the stand, watch five minutes of the action, run to the back of the stand and dictate over the phone to the copy taker what he'd just seen. And you know yes. what's coming next. While he's oh. up in this little box at the back, a goal is scored. So oh. I've to then tried to describe to him, you know, sort of what's happened. Oh, dear, it was dear. chaos. I'll, I'll have to take out the football echo from that day because we have got, uh, you know, the archives here. And it'll be quite interesting to see what the hell the match report looked oh, like. Oh, yeah, well, what a job he must have done. Dear <laughs> me. John, you 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 must have got the inside stories when Harry Catrick was leaving, when when Billy Bingham was leaving. Just oh yeah, yeah, he yeah. arrived. Were, were there any were there any managers linked with Everton that came pretty close that that, that you regret never got the job that might have pushed the club forward a bit? Um, well, I think Bobby Robson um, came close a couple of times. Um, who knows what a job he he would have done? Uh, probably a good one. You've done a great um, job. Yeah. Yeah, I can, can, I, can I jump in here? Because I've always wanted to ask John this. Um, I've seen so many features written about uh, the three occasions Bobby Robson nearly became Everton manager. And there was one occasion where he'd actually shaken hands on leaving Ipswich Town to become Everton manager. I think it might have been when Billy got the job in 73 or 74. And yeah. he just said, look, I just want to be able to tell uh, the Cobolds, you know, face to face that I'm leaving Ipswich. You know, so please shook hands at Everton with whoever he spoke to and says, please, you know, so don't betray my confidence. I just want to tell the chairman back in Ipswich. So they did. You know, he hadn't signed anything, but he says, I'll be your manager when I come back. And apparently the Express, uh, which was John's paper the following day, broke the exclusive that Bobby Robson was going to become Everton manager. And now Bobby believed that somebody at Everton had betrayed him. And so said, right, that's it. I'm not, I can't wait for people that are prepared to betray yeah, me. It, that that was written Ipswich. from Ipswich. Well, was that just here. great journalism on your yeah. part? Or did somebody at Everton betray him? Well, it wasn't him? me. It, was, it <laughs> yeah. was done from the Ipswich end. Um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they wrote the story for the Express. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously they kept me in touch with what was going on. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I don't know how. I mean, how close they did. They actually shake hands or not? I don't know. But what happened with Bingham was that um, one of the um, one of the Everton directors read a feature in the Daily Mirror about Bingham having to get out of Greece because he upset the Colonels, um, <laughs> and that was a story that involved me because I got him. I got him to write a breakdown of AEK Athens, who'd been drawn against Liverpool, and he yeah. did a player breakdown. The next thing is, Billy's been summoned into the the colonel, uh, the sports colonel, and said, you are betraying Greece, you will go to prison. <laughs> and I got a terrible message from Billy saying, you'll have to tell him you made it up. I, did, well, we, I said, we can't do that. So yeah. somehow, I don't know, we got him off the hook. But the spirit <laughs> yeah. of the feature wow. was Billy having to get out of Greece. One of the Everton yeah. directors saw it, and um, the next thing is they offered Billy the job. That's how, wow. that's how they, yeah. Now, how strong Bobby Robson had shaken hands, I don't know, Dave, but um, certainly yeah. he was close on a couple of occasions. One time, yes. I remember, uh, Elton Wellsby at Radio City, it was the lead story on the morning news. Uh, yeah. This is Radio City, central livable temperature, so-and-so. Bobby Robson's on his way now to Goodison to become the new manager. Actually, wow. he wasn't. You know, it's, It yeah. would have been interesting, wouldn't it? That's for sure. When you think about the Ipswich Town team, the, the wonderful team that he created yes. in the late 70s and the early 80s. Yeah. Definitely. Well, it was that that was a football team in the school of science image. They played exactly, Dave. Yeah, gloriously beautiful football. And yeah, yeah I, I think he'd have been a great manager for Everton. I really do. I do. So do I. So do John, I. 
you've, you've mentioned that Harry Catrick was fam famously reserved when he spoke to the media, but when Harry Catrick opened up and, and sat down and spoke with you, what was he like? Well, he was very knowledgeable, um, but he, he was very different at Everton than he'd been at Sheffield Wednesday, and he was very different than he was later at Preston. He was a different man when he was at Everton. He, he almost seemed frightened. I don't know what it was, but he, um, and he was very, very secretive and very suspicious of the press. I mean, they were the last club to let the match of the day cameras in because mm. Harry said they'll get too much information on our team. Um, and that's the way he felt. Um, and there's a classic story when he signed Roy Vernon. Um, the press were in the snooker room at the old snooker room at Goodison. And Harry said, ladies and gentlemen, here's our new signing, uh, Roy Vernon. And he saw Mike Ellis and he went, hello, Mike. They were at school together. And as mm -hmm. soon as Harry saw that there was an outlet from the dressing room straight to the press, he, he wouldn't speak to Mike Ellis. And he <laughs> said to Roy Vernon, you're not to speak to... And oh, it caused ructions that because they were at school together in Wales, you know. Dave, you mentioned in your book the relationship that you built with Walter Smith and then the subsequent relationship that you, that you had with David Moyes. They could both be really charming men, but they could both also give a rocket out when it was needed. Oh. Who, would you have, who would you have least <laughs> liked a rocket off, Walter or Moisey? <laughs> Um, well, I actually saw Walter uh, absolutely furious in front of me. I've heard of David Moyes' meltdowns, but fortunately was never on the receiving end of one. Um, it was by proxy, I suppose. But I mean, the Walter one was the morning after Peter Johnson had sold Duncan Ferguson uh, without his knowledge. And uh, I'd gone into work that morning and my um, acting editor, it was Terry Story, who was a former business reporter, just refused to believe that, you know, the manager could have been unaware of you know, his prime asset being sold. So I went down and said to Walter, I said, look, Walter, you know, so, you know, they've got reservations back in the office that you were unaware of it. Not helped by the fact that Peter's, Peter Johnson's partner, Lorraine Rogers, had been ringing the news desk saying that, you know, Walter had been aware of it and Peter was nobly taking all the flack. So Walter went ballistic. Uh, you, I'm not, I won't use the language he used, but you can imagine how colourful <laughs> it was. And you're not leaving this room till you've heard him say to me that I knew nothing about it. And he's ringing him on his mobile, he's ringing the house, he's ringing his yacht. And Peter very wisely had gone to ground. He wasn't picking <laughs> up the phone anywhere. And in the end, I thought he was going to self-combust, Walter. And I said, look, I believe you. I believe you. Trust me. I said, let me go back to the office. I'll convince them that, you know, so I believe you. You nothing, nothing whatsoever about it. So I did. I, I persuaded them. And as it was, you know, so the club put out a statement a couple of days later confirming, you know, Walter's version of events and Peter obviously stepped down shortly after that. So, yeah, of the two, to answer your question, I think I'd much rather have probably a telling off from David than Walter because Walter was seriously scary when he lost yes, it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I spoke to... Plus he had Archie doing the, uh, the rounds outside with his baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to Gary Naismith and David Weir and, and Richard Goff over the course of this uh, podcast series and each one of them agrees that... that Walter was the right man for Everton, but at the wrong yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I'd agree with that entirely, yeah. I mean, um, I think Sheffield Wednesday wanted him when he came to Everton. And uh, we managed to persuade him, you know, so to come to us instead of <coughs> the real coup because of what he'd achieved at Glasgow Rangers. I mean, he got them to the last four of the uh, Champions League, uh, as well as all the success he achieved in domestic football. 
And if you think of the signings that he brought in in his first full season, you know, Marco Matamazzi, you know, so became, you know, so a, a World Cup finalist, Olivier Dacour, great footballer. John, oh, yeah. John Collins, Terrific. very, very good footballer. Mm. Um, you know, so he, he, Richard Goff was excellent when he brought him in, you know, and he was like towards the tail end of his career. But he did bring in quality footballers. But the circumstances at the time meant that very soon after signing all his players, he then had to sell them again very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that happened on two occasions in his Emerson tenure. He was only there three years because, again, after Peter Johnson had gone and Emerson thought they generated money from the NTL deal. And so they allowed him to spend more money again. And so, again, he brought in three or four new players who he then had to sell very, very quickly again because NTL collapsed, basically. And, you know, so Everson had to sell the money again. So, yeah, he had a very, very difficult time uh, in his three years. And he gets a, a bad rap sometimes, I think, from the supporters. I mean, Gordon Lee's another manager. Who I think very much so. I was going to mention him, yeah. First two seasons, Gordon produced some wonderful football. This long unbeaten run, which I think still exactly. stands. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we scored 76 goals in the 77-78 yeah. season. Highest scoring team in the division. But people yeah. remember the final two seasons when things were going to falling apart. I know. So, yeah, sometimes some managers do suffer unfairly, you know, so with the reputation. Uh, yeah. And you know, Walter was certainly one. But, yeah, I still get, keep in touch with Walter. He's a lovely, lovely fella and uh, yeah. a very, very good manager. Yeah, he is, yeah. You mentioned Gordon Lee there, John, and it brings me nicely on to, to a real bugbearer of mine, the 1970s. I, I think Everton are cruelly, unju- are cruelly judged in the 1970s simply because our neighbours were so successful. But when yeah, you that was a problem, season, wasn't it? Yeah. We played in Europe a few times. We got to FA Cup semi-finals, League Cup final. We finished fourth twice. We finished third. Yeah, there, there were a couple of incidents, I think, in the 1970s. Because you're right, it, it wasn't as bleak uh, a decade as has no. been portrayed. And we did come close uh, to success on a couple of occasions. But I think there were probably three you know, significant pivotal moments. One was the injury uh, to Brian LeBone in the 1971 semi-final. Uh, you know, if that hadn't happened or if Harry, Harry wasn't there that day, was he? He was ill. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if um, was it Tommy Eggleston was in charge, if he'd have... Yeah. I mean, Joe yeah. Royal always says that if he'd have brought me back and played me centre-half, you know, John Toshak wouldn't have had the success he had. We were one nil up at half-time anyway, you know, yeah. so cup final, who knows what would have happened then. I don't want to go into detail with the other one, but you all know what I'm talking about in 1976. Yeah. Oh, Liverpool so again, knew it was a goal. Exactly. We're in an FA Cup yeah. final again against Manchester United, who we'd beaten last season. So who knows what's going to happen on that occasion. And the other one was not bringing in a top quality goalkeeper. There was like a, a philosophy in English football at the time then that, you know, you didn't spend all your money on goalkeepers. You spent them on centre-forwards yeah, and you spent exactly. them on midfielders. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in Italy on the continent, you know, they were spending huge sums of money on goalkeepers because they saw how important they were. But when Everton did get that great world-class keeper, Neville, what a difference that made. Eventually, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. 19- goalkeepers, yeah. Very important. Crucial. Yeah. 1974-75, with seven games to go, Everton at top of the table, and three of our yep. opponents in the last seven games got relegated. So why didn't we win the league that year? <laughs> well, they were really so set to win it. Uh, I remember being at the Sheffield United game, and um, you thought, well, they were 2-0 up at half-time, and you thought, well, right, they're on the way to winning the title. And suddenly, it just went all wrong. Uh, United scored three times in the second half. Everton lost, and then, as you say, Darren, they um, uh, they didn't win another game, did they? After that, and uh, finished fourth. 
that was the, it wasn't a great Everton team to be honest it was functional. no it wasn't and if you remember they were called at the time uh, certainly by the London media uh, Bingham's Robots uh, mm. because they actually went down to Arsenal no flair was the little flair and that was it they were seen as a functional yeah. team uh, but 1-2-0 at Arsenal and that was the first time I ever went to Goodison Park that season on Easter Monday against Coventry uh, 1-1-0 Martin Dobson scored just before half time and that put us a point clear with a game in hand with four games to go. Yes. You're absolutely right. We played Burnley on the Friday, drew 1-1 at home. Burnley were a yeah. decent side. Then it was the Sheffield United match. And then uh, Chelsea was the last day of the season. We drew again. And so it just fell apart. And Derby came from yeah. nowhere to yeah. win it. So it wouldn't have been a, a vintage title winning team, but we undoubtedly threw it away. No doubt yes. whatsoever about that. Yes. Because Lachi was, I think he scored 17 goals in the league that season, which isn't a bad return. No, absolutely. Uh, it was before Dave Thomas had arrived, of course. So, uh, yeah. But um, they had enough, I mean, uh, to be in the position they were in with four games left showed that they could and should have won it, doesn't it, really? It was. It was a strange old season. I mean, um, I read something actually on one of the uh, sites today, which had completely blew me away. I'd never been aware of this. Yeah. Apparently, if three points uh, for a win had been in place in that season, obviously mm. it was two points for a win back then. It was goal average as well. But if three points for a win had been in place, Ipswich Town would have been champions that season. Oh, that well, yes, average. Right. And that probably yeah. would have been fitting because you know they were a very attractive football team. They played. were indeed. Uh, yeah. They won the FA Cup, in fact, uh, the following season, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. They, they were they were a good side, but yeah, it was uh, sort of summed up the seventies for Everton that close but no cigar, close but no cigar. How true! <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That would have been ironic, wouldn't it? Had Bobby Robson led a team to the title in seventy four, seventy five. Yeah, yes, it would, Darren. Yes, indeed. Derby County won the title that year. They lost ten league games. It was a forty two yes. game season, so Derby County lost virtually a quarter of their games and still yeah. won the league. So, Dave yeah. Rice, it was a pretty strange season. Yes. Well, that, yeah. that was the season we went to the baseball ground and won. Bob Latchford scored with a gloriously angled header, you know, so across the goalkeeper into you the You used to have to take runner. your own boat, didn't you, to the oh, baseball Oh, it was dreadful. Ground. It was, yeah. It's Dear great looking back at some of the old YouTube clips of those yeah. pitches. Sa- Sam Longson sold, sold the pitch by the bottle around the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, they had a thriving cottage industry. Yeah, Derby <laughs> County fans around the globe. Buy a bottle of the baseball and used to <laughs> dig it in the pitch and flog them. Yes. <laughs> oh dear. Gentlemen, you've both you've both written books, you've both been involved in a lot of books about Everton and about football. There's an awful lot of research that, that, that's involved in, in, in doing a book. I'll start with you, Dave. Yours is the most recent. Was it was it hard grafted times or was the whole project enjoyable from the first page to the last? No, this one I, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, because I'd had it in my mind to do this book for a long, long time because the, the, the intimacy that we enjoyed at the football clubs, you know, I got so many anecdotes and so be many... A labour of love, stories. I was thinking, Dave. It was, yeah. yeah. And, and people used to say to me when I was relating some of the stories, oh, you've got to put that in a book. That's got to be in a book, you know, so people will mm, love that. Exactly. And so I, start, I started knocking down some of the, uh, you know, the anecdotes, you know, with Diamond, you know, now the club ambassador used to live around the corner from me and we used to go out socially. So, you know, so some of the escapades, you know, I thought that would be a great story, this. <laughs> yeah. D- dinking a ball over Tim Flowers' head from 20 yards about 48 <laughs> hours after it had been rolling man the game suit for me it was, it was, I just wanted to get all these stories down so I had about 10,000 words in anecdotal form 
And end of last season or end of last year, I went to see the publishers at our place reach and said, would you be interested in a story or book like this? And they were very enthusiastic. Uh, I mean, Brian Reed did one, a Liverpool one, uh, 43 years with the same bird. I wanted to leave it oh, until yeah, 45 yeah. years so I could say I beat him. So I could do a couple <laughs> of years more than him. So yeah, they were happy to do it. And they said that, well, I've never done one of this depth before. You know, uh, what would you need? He said, well, we'll need 80,000 words by June. And I'm thinking, wow, I've yeah. done 10,000 words. Ooh, okay. Yeah, lot, so I, said, well, I, won't, I said, I won't commit to it, but, you know, I'll, I'll try and get stuck into it and see what happens. That's well, a big book, 80,000, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as you know, what happened, I mean, the world went into lockdown then, didn't it? So yes. I, was saved, yes. I was saving myself an hour and a half's commute time every day. So right. I, got re- I got really stuck into it at uh, my desk here. Yeah. I had it done by June, you know, so because yeah. there wasn't that much research. I mean, you know, Gavin Buckland did his uh, Money Can't Buy His Love book, which is a great, great book. Oh, yeah, and he fabulous. said it took him seven years to put yeah, together yeah, uh, because yeah. there was so much research involved. Yes, exactly. This wasn't because it was all in my head, you know, so a lot of it was like just wonderful. Yeah, that I can, I can yeah. recall. <laughs> so it wasn't that much research. I mean, obviously, there's some of the details, some of the facts I needed to check, uh, but it wasn't that much in terms of research. So I was quite fortunate in that, that respect. I probably, if I was going to try and follow it up, what I'd love to do is uh, I spoke to David France many times about doing a blue Bible, uh, doing an Old Testament, 1878 to 1938, <laughs> yeah, a good the idea. New Testament, 45 yeah. to the present day, and just season by season. Now, that would take some research. <laughs> well, <laughs> wouldn't it just? I, I was thinking it's, it's seven years to the 150th anniversary of the football club. Maybe then. It took Gavin seven years. Maybe yeah. I should start now and plan to do one for seven years. Oh, the seven-year itch, yeah, I'll say. <laughs> no, good idea. So it's going well, the book, I hope, Dave, is it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the actual sales figures until no. six months' time. October I, saw, I think I saw a piece in the Everton programme, didn't I? Yeah. That's well, right. I, went in, I went into Waterstones in town just before uh, the lockdown uh, to sign some copies. And uh, the girl that greeted me said, oh, well, I've got bad news and good news. I said, oh, dear, go on. Well, what, what's the bad news? We've only got nine copies of the book in store. Oh, said, oh right. Well, what's the good news? Um, the good news is we've sold the rest. Yeah. I said, oh, well, that's great news. That's so, yeah, good, I think yeah. it is going very well. Well, you can get it online. So, you know, it's, it's still yeah. available out there. Yeah. Exactly. Did you have to speak to the people that you wrote about some of the anecdotes? Did you have to speak to Walter or David and say, listen, I'm going to put this in? Do you mind? No, I mean, there's the, some stories in there I, I didn't carry. You know, there's some where you think, no, I can't write that, I can't write yeah, that. No. But some of the stories that I've included, the, the lighthearted, you know, so the banter. I mean, the Peter Johnson era, you know, the stuff I've written there, I, I wrote in the Echo at the time. I was very, very critical of Peter. And, you know, because I felt I had to be, you know, that was my role. I was the Everton correspondent for the Echo. And uh, I had to write honestly what I believe was happening at the football club. Uh, but no, I mean, it, it's all there. It's all honest. It's all, you know, so as I witnessed things and as I perceived things. So yeah. uh, no, no, no one's been on, on the bounce yet. So, uh, <laughs> well, I'm Dave, if, if it, they're, they're your recollections. And as long as there's <laughs> nothing uh, untrue, it, it's, it's you're okay, aren't you? Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which book did you enjoy doing most? John, you've done a few Everton legends. Yeah, well, I've enjoyed them all. Uh, obviously, Dixie was a, a labour of love, having met the guy and um, um, re- being regaled in his company with his wonderful stories. Um, enjoyed that very much. Kevin Sheedy was another book I enjoyed doing very much, particularly because of Kevin's... Um, great recall and uh, matter of detail and things like that. Terrific memory for things like that, you know, which is a wonderful help when you're doing a book. Um, so, yes, I, I, I would think those two were uh, very, very enjoyable. 
very enjoyable indeed. I think I've, got, well, I've got one on my bookshelf here, one of John's, uh, which is a great one from way back in the day. A to Z of Mersey football. Dave, that was a the, to Z of Mersey a soccer. Z of Mersey soccer. That was the first <laughs> book I ever did. It was a yeah. Daily Express book. Yeah, that's oh, a cracker. <laughs> doing it, yeah. It's yeah. actually very rare. It's collected. It's worth, yeah. worth a few bob. The oh, well, it's on, I've got one on my shelf. That was 1973, <laughs> I think, if yeah. I remember rightly. Yeah. That came out, yeah. yeah. But of course, it's not what's in it. It's what we left out. There's, it's only a. It says A to Z, but there's so much. <laughs> Because they wanted it done in about three weeks. So. Right. <laughs> no pressure. Good for you, Dave. Not many people got one of those. <laughs> <laughs> there, must, there must have been occasions, maybe when you're speaking to Kevin Sheedy, after the book has come out, or, or Colin Harvey, after the book's come out, or even yourself now, Dave. That Colin you Harvey, by the way, another great book I yeah. enjoyed. There must be situations where you look back and you think, damn, I wish I'd put that in. <laughs> yeah people have asked me that a few times i've done a few podcasts about the book and people have said is there anything that you know you've left out and i said well yeah there are some stories that obviously you know you can't relate you'll never betray those confidences but in terms of actual anecdotes probably the one that i, I wish i'd included uh, and i didn't probably because it isn't strictly speaking a football story but it is is tony bellew the night he won the world title at goodison ah, yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. a wonderful wonderful evening i mean it was a beautiful clear sky beautiful night um you know the the gladys street was chocker it was an entire bill full of scousers and even the circumstances in which he did it he walked out to zed cars uh, he yeah. got put on his backside in the opening round he bounced back up and it was just a, a magical evening and i think i was sat next to greg o'keefe and i turned to him and said look remember this mate as remember it this is history being made yes, here somebody winning a world title at goodison yeah. park yeah. and so yeah in hindsight maybe i should have included that because that was a, a truly memorable evening it was wasn't it yeah i'll say john who's the best everton player you've ever reported on I've ever reported on Alan Ball. Uh, I knew you'd say that. Yeah, absolutely right. That didn't take you long to answer, John? No, well, I mean, he was sensational. Well, Alan Ball and Neville Southall, if you're talking about an outfield player, Alan Ball. Because um, he was just incredible. He came straight in and, uh, um, and, you know, he caused havoc. He was a fantastic player. Having starred as a kid at the World Cup just a few weeks earlier, arrived at Everton and... You know, and then of course, not long after, they had the wonderful ball, Harvey Kendall. What mm. a trio that was! Absolutely mm. wonderful. And we talk about Harry Catterick. There's the man who put that together. He knew what he wanted, and that shows you what great management is. Because I asked Colin Harvey, I said, "Do you think it was accidental?" He said, "Oh no, no, no. Harry knew what he wanted, and he put the three of us together for that reason. Because they all had wonderful different um, abilities, didn't they?" Absolutely. Superb balance, wasn't there? What about yourself, Dave? Reported on it, it would have to be Neville. I know it's the obvious choice, but he was probably the only truly world-class footballer uh, that I've been able to report on. And um, I, was, I started at the Daily Post in 1987, which was probably just as Neville was reaching his peak. So from yeah. 87 through to about 1991, he was <laughs> absolutely supreme. And uh, I always remember that game at Coventry City, uh, which is remembered because uh, Tony Cotty scored the winner. And having scored the hat-trick at Newcastle on the Saturday, he mm -hmm. went to Coventry and scored the winner again. But he was only the match winner because Neville was absolutely incredible that afternoon. Just absolutely nothing was going to beat him. He even oh. saved a Brian Kilcline penalty. And he just had this aura, this presence about him in that era. And so many of those games, you just knew he wasn't going to be beaten. That's Absolutely right. phenomenal talent. 
Uh, so, you know, certainly the best footballer I've reported upon. In terms of outfield players, it's difficult, really. I mean, uh, I only saw Alan Ball play uh, for Southampton at Goodison. I didn't see him play uh, during his Everton era. Um, I mean, I often think that, you know, Romelu Lukaku is very unfairly criticised, you know, so he was magnificent, yeah. you know, so for his career at Everton. But probably for the, the one season, Andrei Konchelskis, uh, when yes. he came in. Oh, fantastic, and, yeah. Oh, just, I remember yeah. seeing, I mean, it was a pre-season friendly, player. Uh, pre-season yeah. friendly away at Wrexham at uh, the start of the following season and he scored four goals and that was in the days when you can stand outside the dressing rooms and I was stood there and every single player walked past me one by one and just like shook his head and just went, oh my God, Andrei. Oh God, how good was Andre? Yeah. Oh my God, he was phenomenal. And you know, I was you know, self-deprecating footballers on how much flack flies around. But yeah. you know, so nobody was taking the mickey that night. No, he was sensational. That and he was, you know, so for a season, he, he was absolutely you know, yeah. on fire. Well, they scored three against Liverpool that season, didn't they? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, Neville, Neville was the best for me. Yeah, oh, he was the best goalkeeper I've seen. Neville, yeah, yeah definitely. Gentlemen, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure to spend almost an hour in your company, reminiscing about the... Uh, I think Pleasure, Darren. It's gone very quickly. Same yeah, we've the good old days, can't we? <laughs> so we've, we've come right up to the present day nearly, with Lukaku's mentioned. So. <laughs> we must do it again sometime, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> with whole different stories. Well, we could, we could go on for hours, I'm sure we could. Yeah. Gentlemen, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for joining us.